So if I make myself vulnerable to your performance and give you an assignment that I'm ultimately responsible for as the leader and you fail, the way I react to that is either going to destroy trust or build trust. Welcome to Change Your Mindset Podcast, where it's all about believing in and executing on different and innovative ways to strengthen both your leadership and communication skills to help increase your success, and especially in today's disruptive business environment. One of the most effective ways of building stronger leadership and communication skills is by embracing the principles of improvisation. (laughs) Yes, that's right, improv. Your host, Peter Margaritas, is an improv virtuoso. He's also a certified speaking professional and a CPA, also known as the Accidental Accountant. Each episode of Change Your Mindset is designed to bring you different and innovative ideas, thoughts, and behavioral changes on a variety of differing topics, with the sole purpose of strengthening your critical soft skills. We may call them soft skills, but they are the hardest to master. And when we do, greater success and growth is the result. So jump in and start changing your mindset now. Let's start the show. Do you put the needs of your team before yours? As a leader, are you a leader that engages your team or do you just deliver orders and tell them what to do? Do you encourage your team to do their best in a non-threatening manner? Do you get mad and let it fester for a bit? Or do you get mad and then get over it and move forward? Those questions and more will be discussed by my guest, David Veach, who's had many different roles. Infantry officer, husband, father, author, student, farmer, grandfather, and teacher. David teaches organizations how to obliterate their obstacles, accelerate innovation, and elevate performance by teaching leaders how to love, learn, and let go. Leaders who apply David's lessons achieve higher productivity, higher profitability, and higher professionalism as they build great workplaces. He is passionate and an inspiring speaker, whether speaking to large audiences or hosting intimate workshops with small executive teams. He is an expert in leadership and operational excellence. For over 30 years, David has carefully studied leadership and work systems, looking for practical strategies his students or clients can effectively apply. He has taught leadership on the faculty of Stetson University and Lean Six Sigma at the Defense Acquisition University as an officer of the U.S. Army. Since retiring from the military service in 2001, he has served as teaching faculty at the University of Kentucky, Go Cats, and the Ohio State University. He has built two successful consulting firms whose clients include the U.S. Postal Service, Owens Corning, Rolls-Royce, the Arizona Department of Economic Security, and Nationwide Insurance. David has written two best-selling books, and he is constantly learning and sharing new things. He's an avid orator and a certified cruise consultant with his own travel agency. He's been married to Mary for over 35 years. He has three adult children, two grandchildren, five dogs, a horse, 
and a herd of deer that Mary likes to keep fed through the winter. Wow. So before we get to this interview, I need to take care of a couple housekeeping items. This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. This episode is sponsored by Peter A. Margaritas, LLC, also known as The Accidental Accountant. Are you looking for a speaker that can bring powerful content, virtually or in person or on-site, that is memorable and engaging in a way that motivates and inspires your audience? Instead of data dumping and numbing with numbers, imagine your people and teams delivering a financial story to your stakeholders, a story that creates engaging and relationship-building business conversations. Would you be interested in learning more about how that is accomplished? How would you feel if the value your facilitator provided your organization far exceeded the dollar amount on their invoice? Peter Margaritas, CPA and Certified Speaking Professional, delivers all of the above and much, much more. All of Peter's programs can be done virtually, in-person and on-site at your location, or at an off-site venue. Send Peter a note at peter at petermargaritas.com and or visit his website at www.petermargaritas.com to learn more about what Peter can bring to your next conference, management retreat, or workshop. Now, let's get to the interview with David Veach. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm excited about my guest this week. Mr. David Veach has a wealth of leadership knowledge. Uh, I've met David earlier this year. He's a member of the National Speakers Association, part of the Ohio chapter. We have a lot in common, and that being University of Kentucky. Uh, and Go Cats. Go Cats. And he's also a connoisseur of what I like to call the brown water from Kentucky. The bourbon whiskey, but we're not going to talk about that. We should make that another podcast talking okay. about bourbon stuff like we that. We can that, definitely do that. That would that would be that would be fine. But now we're we're going to focus our conversation on leadership. And first and foremost, David, thank you for taking time out in your pandemic schedule <laughs> <laughs> to spend some time with me on my podcast. Well, thanks for inviting me on, Peter. I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> so you've, I mean, looking at your resume. You've got a lot of leadership experience. Um, can you kind of give us like a, just a quick overview of that of that journey that you've been on? Well, yeah, the biggest part of that journey was 20 years in the Army. So I was an Army officer. I went through college at Western Kentucky University on an Army ROTC scholarship and got my first taste of leadership there. I learned very quickly that uh, it suited my personality and it suited my skill set. Uh, and so I got um, some early leadership opportunities with the cadets in the in the Corps. But then I graduated. I'm a second lieutenant, 20 years old. They sent me off to infantry school. Um, and then, you know, the game changes. And then you really start learning when you have this extreme diversity of people and personalities and skill sets and skill levels. And you've got to take this group of folks and accomplish some mission. Um, mm -hmm. It's uh, every single day was a learning opportunity. Uh, you got to make decisions. You got to understand the needs. You got to put the needs of your people above your own. 
you've got to challenge these folks. You got to provide them all the support they need. You got to kick their butts when they need that. Uh, and then when they're feeling down because you kicked their butt, you got to encourage them to keep on trucking on. Um, so that was a, a wonderful experience. And I was a I was an infantry officer for uh, the first part of the career. So I was a platoon leader, uh, company executive officer. Then I was a company commander in Germany. Um, oh. So I spent 18 months on the brigade staff as the training officer, which was a, an incredible experience. I, maybe I can share a little bit of that in a little bit. Uh, and then I got to command a rifle company, which is 90 soldiers. Uh, and I did that for a year and they must have liked what I did because then they made me the headquarters company commander. And there are 366 soldiers in the headquarters company commander. So as a 24-year-old um, wow. captain in the Army, I was responsible for the lives and well-being of 360 soldiers um, at the height of the Cold War, at the tip of the sword of freedom, we would say, in Germany. Uh, so that experience uh, was just, uh, you just can't get that anywhere else. Um, no. Uh, I went from command, I taught ROTC then. After that, I came back, and that's where I really discovered that uh, I need to be teaching. That is what I'm supposed to be doing. That was what I was put here on earth to do, was to be a teacher. And I discovered that uh, teaching ROTC at Stetson University. Uh, in the late 80s. Went from there into the Acquisition Corps. They sent me to grad school at Clemson. I got a master's in industrial management from Clemson uh, and then went to work buying missile systems for the Army. So I bought missile systems and I learned about, uh, yeah, <laughs> I learned about, uh, uh, I learned about leading civilians then. Okay. Uh, and the civilians that were on my team were incredibly capable. You know, you hear rumors of these little old ladies in tennis shoes, these government workers who were lazy, and they, I didn't have any of that experience. These folks were dedicated professionals, always learning, always um, committed to the mission. And my experience with government civilians has always been spectacular, unlike a lot of people, apparently. Can, can I ask you a quick question here? Yeah. Um, you're going from leading soldiers to know that you're the command to civilians that know that you're the boss. Yeah. Talk about that transition. I mean, the, the mentality between, <clears throat> between somebody in the military who I, I'm serving under you, I follow your orders to, I need you to do this job. <laughs> well, um, it depends on the type of leader you are. And I... Okay. I learned very quickly that I wanted to be the type of leader that engaged the, the soldiers and got them to willingly do the things instead of being the guy who says, do it because I said so. Uh, one of my mentors early on was Colin Powell. Um, oh. I got to, uh, as a young captain on the brigade staff in Germany, he was my corps commander, a three-star general. And he came to Grafenwehr, Germany, uh, and I got to brief him on our Brigade's training plan while we were at Grafenwehr, and there's another place called Hohenfels that was the big maneuver training center. And he was just unlike other general officers that I had made presentations to, he was incredibly encouraging and incredibly inviting. I mean, I've done presentations to other general officers, and it was like, you know, if you make one misstep, they're going to light your butt up. Mm -hmm. He was not like that at all. So he, he was very encouraging and very supportive. 
I got good feedback at the end from him and from my bosses. And I paid attention to pretty much everything he did after that. And so I've always been a big Colin Powell fan. His, the, the one rule that always sticks out, he, he published a set of rules when he was the commander. The one that sticks out was get mad, but get over it. Oh. So get mad, <laughs> get it out. But don't you don't need to yell at anybody to get mad. You get mad, you get mad inside, you just figure out what you really want to do, but then get over it and understand what the real problem is and then attack the real problem. Don't attack the person who makes you mad. So that has kind of stuck with me. And that that bearing that he brought and that, uh, that encouraging kind of presence that he established was something that I play, I worked very hard to, to emulate when I was a company commander. And then when I started working with civilians, it was the same thing. The biggest difference with the civilians was in that skill set and their experience level. I mean, they were way more qualified to do the work that we were doing than I was. Uh, and so I let them know that I was there to learn from them. I wasn't there to tell them what to do or how to do it. I was there to learn from them. And the the response you get from people when you put yourself in their hands instead of trying to make them get into your hands, it's uh, it's a tremendous kind of liberating response. And and I had uh, I had twelve civilians that worked for me at one time, and we had a blast. I mean, it was a a, a great team, a great experience. Um, so that pretty much took me through uh, my military career. I went from uh, buying missile systems to an in-plant job at, the, at Lockheed Martin Vought Systems in Grand Prairie, Texas. So we have a government office there, and I was the operations officer. We had $4 billion plus development programs that Lockheed Martin was the lead contractor for, and we were overseeing those folks. Um, and again, a wonderful group of professional folks who were, who were in that office. But I got downsized and uh, I got passed over for promotion to lieutenant colonel, which was like the most devastating experience of my life. I can imagine. But it was because the acquisition corps was sized for an army that was, you know, 525,000 when we created the acquisition corps. <clears throat> And under Clinton, the Army shrunk to 400,000, and the Acquisition Corps didn't change size. Oh, okay. So they said, well, we need to make an adjustment to reflect the appropriate percentage. And while I had gotten into the Acquisition Corps, because their promotion rate from major to lieutenant colonel had historically been like 97%, Mm -hmm. for my year group, when we came up, the promotion rate was less than 30%. Wow. Uh, but fortunately, I had a friend who was the assignments officer, and he calls me up the day the promotion list comes out, and I'm not on it. He calls me up, and he says, Dave, wherever you want to go, whatever you want to do, anywhere in the world, any job, I'll make it happen for you. Wow. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to teach. <laughs> <laughs> I want to teach. And so he said, I'm on it. And uh, he called me back three days later and he said, I got two jobs for you. You get to choose from. Uh, and this was like July. He said, I can have you at Fort Lee, Virginia at the uh, Army Logistics Management College by September, 
or you can go to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base to the Air Force Institute of Technology uh, next summer. And I talked to my boss, and he said, well, we need some transition time, so don't, don't bail on me now. Yeah. Uh, I took the job at Wright-Patterson. It was closer to home, and that began in earnest my transition to consulting and teaching. Uh, that was a wonderful experience. And, of course, the first thing they did was uh, they sent me to school. The Air Force actually has a six-week-long academic instructor course. Nice. And so I went through that in two different stages. But part of that was learning how to deliver distance learning. It was in its infancy at the time. But we had to, they had a studio set up. We learned how to do the video and, and sound checks. And I got dinged really hard from my classmates once because I made a face. I had asked a question, and it was an interactive session. I had asked a question, and I didn't get the response back that I needed to get, and I made yeah. this face, and everybody interpreted that as me being extremely judgmental to the audience. <laughs> so uh, got to be careful when, you're, when your whole body language is not available to folks. It's, you got to be careful what your expressions say to the folks on the monitor. <laughs> Actually, that's good advice. I, I, earlier, earlier today, I did a four-hour uh, virtual workshop on zoom and i think maybe at one time i i, I think i i now that you say that there was one of those resp like that one of those responses i just i just think i paused and just kept a straight face i hope i did <laughs> but that, that's good that's that's good advice so so i'm fascinated keep going <laughs> well i was able to um um one of the things that i was responsible for since i had come from that position at lockheed martin it was very operations oriented and in the defense acquisition workforce, uh, they have different career fields and different levels of, of training and certification that they have to take folks through. Um, and I was, uh, I was in the contracting field and I was in the production quality and manufacturing field. When I got to Wright-Patterson, I was supposed to teach production quality manufacturing management. And I get in there and uh, there's nothing about lean manufacturing in this uh, at all for the okay. government. And so I, I, told, um, I told the leadership and the folks who make these decisions that uh, all these defense contractors are trying to apply these lessons from Toyota in their own facilities. Mm. We need to be teaching the government employees how to help them do that. So let's add this lean curriculum into the programs for the government. And they said, uh, do you know anything about it? <laughs> and I said, I, only what I learned through my master's degree, I can go down the road to the University of Kentucky and go learn catch. all that. Um, <laughs> so I called the guys at the University of Kentucky. I got a discounted price for their lean certification program. Mm -hmm. I went through that, established a, a pretty decent relationship with them. Uh, also went to Toyota about 10 times, which is not right. far from there. Right, George. Uh, and about six months before I was scheduled to retire in 2001, uh, I get a call from uh, University of Kentucky, and they say, "Hey, would you like to come to work and teach for us?" And I was like, "Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah." Twist my arm. So um, I got my first gig teaching for UK. Uh, six months before I retired, I had to go to uh, York, Pennsylvania, and do a lean operations management course for a bunch of uh, hardened folks at uh, Harley-Davidson. Oh. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was the most nerve-wracking experience of my life. 
<laughs> there I am. I, I've never worked in a factory in my life, and I'm supposed to teach 30 of these folks who've been working in factories their whole lives something about lean. And uh, I learned uh, very quickly the importance of preparation. <laughs> so, yeah. So just in case my audience doesn't know about lean and lean management, could you give like a quick overview of it? So. Oh yeah, that's the, like the, the foundation part of of my life, and I want to I want to tie that into changing mindsets as well because it's an okay. important thing that I've I've discovered in this. Um, lean seeks to um, make efficient every process in an organization. Um, for your particular audience, Peter, there's actually a field of lean accounting because a lot of the accounting systems that organizations rely on were designed to support mass manufacturing principles that were invented by Henry Ford, right? Mm-hmm. So we got the assembly line and po- folks are just cranking out piles and piles and piles of materials, shipping containers full overseas and everything else. And, and there's just lots of inventory in this pipeline. Uh, and one of the things that Toyota learned as they were growing was that uh, they can't rely on output from assets uh, as a, a key indicator of performance the way that most Western businesses do. You know, we want to we want to see that return on assets. That means we want to keep that equipment running and everything. Well, Toyota learned if they keep their equipment running, they'll just have a bunch of crap that piles up and stays there. They incur all that cost. They get no revenue from that. And so what we want to encourage organizations to do is, is make things in response to customer orders when they need them. Deliver them on time. Deliver them perfectly. Uh, And that's the essence of lean. Um, And I've been a student of that since I read The Machine That Changed the World when I was in grad school back in 1991. Um, It's an incredible story uh, about how Toyota kind of evolved through all this stuff. Now, Toyota gets a lot of credit for doing a lot of great things, but almost everything that they did was in response to their business environment, right? So um, they didn't just come up with these wonderful ideas to reduce inventory levels, they had to or they wouldn't have been able to survive. Uh, They didn't learn how to lead and treat people uh, until after they had lifetime contracts, lifetime employment contracts forced upon them in response to uh, some employee unrest they had in the 1950s uh, when the banks called their loan and Kiichiro Toyota had to lay off 1,500 people. It was the first time Toyota had to lay anybody off. The last time they laid anybody off, 1951. Um, wow. So now, in response to that, they said, we're never going to rely on banks anymore. So they have a they have probably $5 billion in cash reserves somewhere, anytime, some doing something. So they've got enough money to shut down plants for several months at a time and keep the employees training and working and retooling things. So they're very dedicated to that. What a concept. It, it is incredible. <laughs> Having that kind of money gives you right. lots of flexibility, right? <laughs> I guess um, it does. Yes, you're right. <laughs> so that's one of the ways that they became the largest car manufacturer on the planet. What makes that system work, though, is what I've been trying to study. And, and part of my career at the University of Kentucky was tied very closely to that. We had a partnership with Toyota. Since we were teaching people lean and the principles of Toyota production system, I actually got a badge to Toyota uh, as part of my, so I had an ID card for UK and I had a badge for Toyota. And they said, go to Toyota as often as you can and learn. And 
I get to decide what I'm going to study, right? I'm on the faculty there and I'm like, all right, all the engineers that I worked with in the College of Engineering took all the cool stuff. So I'm going to go and study, I'm going to go and study suggestion systems and quality circles and leadership development and their team structure and all of their people systems. And so I spent five years at the University of Kentucky. I spent uh, that time working on a PhD in educational psychology that I wish I had been able to finish. I haven't. (laughs) So I'm not Dr. Beach. (laughs) Uh, But I've got that um, the wonderful experience of going and learning from Toyota by observing as a third party uh, and by interviewing everybody there. I never actually got to work there, um, but I, I lived in a town full of folks who worked there and I got to hear their experiences had guys stop me in the hallway uh, at church and ask me. Uh, one guy in particular said, "He said, hey, what do you what do you know about uh, this? Uh, there was this Ziggy Ziggy, and I said Six Sigma. He said, yeah, they're talking about that at work now. What the heck is it? And so I got to tell him it's a, 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 a more statistics based way to do the things that they've always been doing. But uh, one of the things that I had to tease out and put together uh, was this this principles. Uh, this this philosophical approach to what lean really was for organizations. And a huge piece of that is leadership. And so the first book I wrote was on problem solving. The second book I wrote was on leadership, but it's all uh, based on this framework that I was able to to build. And it's uh, Toyota has a, a house that they use as a metaphor that shows most of their key elements. And I kind of built off of that, but the foundation that we build on is something I call dynamic stability. So, um, and it's not exactly two words that go together, right? Uh, <laughs> dynamic is, is pretty much moving all the time and stability right. is never moving. So how do you create an organization that that has the stability to measure things and repeat performance and build skills uh, so that you can actually see when you're doing things right? So you need that stability and that that repetition so you can build those skills. Uh, and set targets for improvement. But in the environment that we're in, it's always changing. Um, So how do you then pivot from one thing that you're very stable at, change that immediately, and then stabilize that as quickly as possible? And I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, And the main thing, uh, really the only thing that that truly matters is the leader's mindset going into this. Mm -hmm. And uh, leaders need to be able to share the way that they think about their work with the organization. So I've got four key components in the dynamic stability. One is the leader's mindset. Next is uh, you've got to build a learning organization. So everything you do is focused on learning and developing people. Mm -hmm. Uh, The third thing is put everybody in teams because teams are the fundamental learning structure for humanity. Uh, And finally, it's trust. So you have to be working every day to build trust. Mm -hmm. And you've been told to build trust once or twice in your career, right, Peter? Yeah, once or twice. You're supposed (laughs) to just know this, right? Uh, Absolutely. Um, So I spent a lot of time actually teaching people the things that they need to do to build trust. And there's really, there's two key components. Um, The first is clarity of expectations from both sides. Right. So as the leader, I need to make sure that when I 
expect people to perform in a particular way, I have to be crystal clear in how I express those uh, expectations. And with, with Lean and Toyota Production System, we've got a tool called standardized work that allows us to say, here is everything that we are supposed to do, and here's how we're supposed to do it, and here's how long it's supposed to take. So we can get very explicit on our expectations of our people. But where we usually fall short is that it's a two-way street, and your people have expectations of you as a leader. And if you don't take the time to stop and listen to their expectations of you, then you're only doing half of what you need to do for trust building. And it doesn't work when you only do half. Trust requires both parties to clarify their expectations of the other and then commit to satisfying those expectations. So in your work with with your current clients in in corporate America, is it a two-way street in most cases? Okay. No. I just want to be, I just because that's that was gonna be my answer, but 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 you're a lot closer to it. It's usually a one way street, right? It 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 usually is, and it's usually down from a power focus. So yes. I I'm the leader of the organization based on the resources that the the leader the organization bestows upon me. Okay, the CEO has a lot of power because he or she controls every resource that is available for the company. And if I'm a division leader, I've got certain resources that the organization has given me. And power has always been based on those resources. And if you're down at the bottom, you got no resources. So you just, you know, you get squashed all the time. But true leadership is most effective when it's based on authority. And I learned the difference between power and authority when I read a little book called The Servant by James Hunter a um, hundred years ago, uh, and it introduced me to this concept of servant leadership that I have found whenever I see an organization that is really performing effectively on a consistent basis, if you look to the leader, they all kind of mimic these same basic principles of of servant leadership, which is to put the needs of your people above your own, learn what they need, let them do the things that you've trained them to do, and then tell the world how great they are. Okay, And I kind of summarize those four things as um, love, learn, let go, then go connect. And if we, if we love and openly love. We, we, every great leader I've ever had has, has not had any qualms at all about saying, I love the people that I, I worked with. I love the work that we were doing. But it's not an emotional kind of thing. It's just a, it's a straight decision that you need to make as a leader. And you got to make it every day. Okay, I got to commit every day that I'm going to make this decision to love my folks. And I'm going to demonstrate that love by putting their needs above my own. So I'm going to sacrifice what I need to make sure they have everything they need so that they can succeed. Okay. So uh, if I am actually going to be good at doing that, the next thing I need to do is learn what those needs are. So the learn piece comes from me going out into the world and talking to people to understand what challenges they have, what problems they have, what successes they're enjoying, 
uh, what they need to succeed. What are their bona fide needs so that I can then go round up my resources from my power pool, scoop those resources out and, and deliver them to satisfy the needs of my people. And the third thing is, and this is, this is probably the hardest one for most leaders. Um, ultimately, as humans, the hardest one is going to be love because there are so many people who, who are, well, you know, there are just so many people who are so unlovable, it seems, right? You just want to, there's so many people at work, you just want to choke, you know? But you can't do that. You have to be able to love those people. So you got to make that decision. So that's yeah. hard. Then you learn what their needs are. But then once, once you've provided the things that they need, you've got to let them go and do it. Right. And that's very hard for us to let go because we're all, you know, closet control freaks. So that's that's control enthusiast. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be more politically correct with my controlling. (laughs) Yeah. From one control enthusiast to another. (laughs) So I've learned that uh, leaders will not do that unless there are systems in place to give them that feeling that they're still in control of things. So the way we build visual management systems and the way we measure work performance should give that leader enough of a sense of control that he or she feels like we know what's going on. But what I see in the workplace too often is uh, when leaders give people that opportunity to perform, okay? And this is a critical part of trust building too. The expectations was one part that I mentioned earlier. The other part is leader vulnerability. You're never going to have trust unless people see that leaders are making themselves vulnerable to their performance. So if I make myself vulnerable to your performance and give you an assignment that I'm ultimately responsible for as the leader and you fail, the way I react to that is either going to destroy trust or build trust. And if I say, I can't afford to have you fail again. I'm just going to do that myself because I know I can do it right and I know I can do it quickly. Right. So I'll just do that work. Right. And you do meaningless, crappy work, right? Right. Um, I'm sure there's a politically correct term for that. (laughs) (laughs) When you do that, the the worst thing you do is you demoralize that person and they won't want to be sharing with you anything else, right? Right. Um, Right. But Uh, That means you're overloading yourself with tasks that your people should be performing. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing that work and it's tying you up, and I I bet 90% of your listeners are extremely busy at work doing things that other people could do for them. Right. I believe that. I believe that. But they don't because they haven't taken the time to fully develop the skills in their people to fully trust them to do the work at the level of quality and the, le- and the timing that you know, today's very time pressure work requires. This, this let go thing is really important because if, if we let somebody do something and they fail, our job is then to show them how not to fail and give them another shot. And that was, I mentioned when my time on the brigade staff. I was the brigade training officer in Germany before I took my first command. And my boss was the Brigade S3, who's the Brigade Operations Officer. He's responsible for all the war plans and making sure that the brigade is trained to achieve those war plans, right? So 
uh, I was the training officer and I was responsible for writing the commander's training guidance on a quarterly and annual basis. So I was writing for the brigade commander. 12,000 soldiers we're talking about, right? He's responsible for that. So um, my boss, I hated working for him at first until I figured out what was going on. Because every time I would, I would take a stab at writing the training guidance and I would send it over to him and he would just bring it back and it'd be dripping blood red <laughs> ink. And he, but he never like lit into me about, but he would sit down with me. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you're young, you don't want the lecture, right? Just tell me what I did and let me do it, right? Right. He would always sit down and we would go through it and he would make sure I understand why this was better than that or that was worse than this. And it was very frustrating. It drove, drove me crazy. And then, and then I would work until eight o'clock that night to fix it and try it again, only to have him come back the next day and walk through everything else. And uh, after about six iterations, it would be okay. And he'd send it down to the brigade commander. And the brigade commander came down to me and said, what a fabulous job you did. That was the best training guidance I've ever seen. Thank you so much. You know, and that makes, I didn't do anything right what this guy told me to write. He took it down there and never took credit for any of it and made me feel like a million bucks. And let me tell you, if I thought I worked hard before that, (laughs) (laughs) I worked so much harder after I understood what he was doing. Yeah. I worked so much harder to make him look great to the boss. Right. And he, so he's my example of a servant leader. He never did the work for me, always made me redo it, and always satisfied my need to learn. So leaders need to understand that regardless of the time pressure, your main job is to create the time to develop the skills in your people so that they can do the work without you. And nobody wants to, nobody likes the idea of working themselves out of a job, but that's your job. That's right. That's your job. Exactly. <laughs> I want to hire people who's going to take my job at some point in time, hopefully if I'm teaching them well and giving them the right resources to grow. And that's what it takes. It, it right. takes teaching. Leaders need to understand how to teach. We call it coaching now. I mean, you don't have to be a classroom teacher in front of a bunch of students, but but understanding the objectives of what you're trying to teach and understanding the methods that you need to convey to them and then giving them a chance to experiment, that's what teaching is. And leaders need to understand that their number one responsibility above anything else is to develop those skills. Right. Part of that mindset I mentioned earlier, okay, and we're in that foundation block about dynamic stability, if you remember back a little while ago. I mentioned there was leadership, learning, teams, and trust. In that leadership piece, I got four key things that I I like to highlight. Um, One is the leader's got to be able to articulate a vision for the future. And I see an awful lot of crappy visions. I don't know about you, Peter, but I see an awful (laughs) lot of crappy vision statements. So the the purpose to me for a vision statement is, one, it's got to motivate people. Oh, yeah, I want to go there too. That sounds fantastic. But in a time like today, you know, we're in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic. Everybody's kind of depressed. Everybody's home, working from home. We've lost our human connection. The purpose of a vision is to give people hope that things are going to be better. Right. So if a leader doesn't paint that picture of the future, 
people aren't going to have any hope and people aren't going to be motivated and they're going to be looking someplace else for that because that's a basic human need. So mm-hmm. articulate your vision. Next, one of the values that are essential um, that are going to drive the behavior that is acceptable on your journey to achieve that vision. So I'm a big fan of saying here are the values because the way we behave at work with each other is absolutely critical. So the values that we talk about, they aren't for the outside world. They're for the inside world. They're for our own leaders to behave in a particular way that shows respect, that encourages, (laughs) that supports, that challenges, and that corrects our people. Um, So we've got to be able to articulate that vision we got to be able to articulate the values and then we got to commit to achieving that right so we commit to work the commitment is the third part and uh, commitment is not it's not a half-hearted kind of thing right uh, my favorite story about commitment is the uh, is the uh, I, I guess it's the old timers breakfast at cracker barrel okay the old timers <laughs> breakfast scrambled eggs and bacon, okay, and the chicken in this scenario makes a wonderful contribution to the success of that breakfast, but the pig is is by God committed to that <laughs> breakfast. So can you put your whole body and mind into this vision that you've articulated to go after? <laughs> Had you not heard that story before? <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. So, this leadership mindset is driven by vision, values, commitment, and the last piece is discipline. And discipline has a, a couple of tricky meanings, right? Um, what most people think of when you say discipline is punishment. Um, so, you screw something up, you got to go see HR for punishment, discipline. Uh, but if uh, if I remind everybody, all of your listeners, when they went to school and they selected that accounting or finance as their major, that was their discipline, right? The discipline is actually your field of study. Mm-hmm. And it's a derivative of the word disciple. And disciples, we are, if you go to Sunday school at all, you're familiar with with. 12 of them who followed a teacher to learn, right? They followed a teacher because he was able to articulate a vision of the future that they wanted to understand that they wanted to be a part of. He articulated the acceptable behaviors in the terms of values that he expected them to live by. And then he committed to teaching them every single day. And that's the same thing that every effective leader does, is you commit to teaching every single day, but to be a true disciple, you can't stop with learning. You also have to go out and teach. So this discipline approach is one that really focuses heavily on leaders, teaching leaders to be teachers. So we're going to teach the skills that people need to know We're going to teach the tools that people need to know. We're going to teach the systems that people need to know. And we're going to teach them how to critically think 
and identify and solve problems. And those four things driving that leader's mindset should put us in the right place to be incredibly stable and skill building while at the same time allowing us to pivot very quickly and think and reset new systems to address any kind of change that the organization has to face. So vision, values, commitment, discipline, all critical pieces of that leader's mindset. Man, I tell you what, I, I, I could work, I'm bringing you back again because uh, I, I love this stuff. Because I believe the same thing you believe. I come at it from just a little bit different angle. But yes, I, I and you know, that, that let people fail. Absolutely. Failure, failure is an option. I've always said, but I mean, I, my father was not into mistakes or failure, so I, I, I was always very critical. But when I when I had a boss that basically told me I was human, and they expected me to make mistakes, yeah. but then but then she said, I also expect you to come in here with a solution. I don't care if it's right, wrong, or indifferent. Come in here with a solution, and then we're going to work our way to that ultimate solution. Uh, I I've had very few bosses ever since attack it that way. And it's in the same mindset. Empowering, though, isn't it? Once you understand what they're doing with you, yeah, then it really changes your attitude toward work with them. And it doesn't become work. It's just, it's an experience that you can't get anywhere else. And, and our leaders today need to be the ones creating those situations for people in the workforce. Okay, so two things. Give me the titles of both your books. Okay. The first book was The C4 Process. The C4 process is a derivative of the plan, do, check, act, problem-solving process that Walter Stewart and Deming gave to us in the 30s. Okay. Uh, it's a, a little easier to teach. Concern, cause, countermeasure, confirm. The C4 process, that's the first one. The second one is leader sites, creating great leaders who create great workplaces. Um, that was uh, It was released in February 2017. And... Uh, it talks specifically in the first half of the book about all those things in that leader's mindset. So it gives you the framework that I talked about with dynamic stability and the rest of this, the house that uh, kind of serves as a metaphor for this framework. Um, and it, uh, it breaks out vision, it breaks out values and behaviors, and it breaks out, um, it really focuses kind of on self-efficacy of the workforce. What can we do to build confidence in our workforce? And so maybe we'll talk about that the next time. Because um, okay. I could talk for weeks on that. <laughs> it's the coolest stuff ever. Yeah. Uh, then in the middle, I've got a chapter where I've, I've kind of created a new leadership model that I call the leader, the integral leadership model that starts with this core of servant leadership and envelops that with, uh, with level five leadership, which was popularized by Jim Collins in the book, Good to Great. Uh, and then that gets kind of surrounded by short interval leadership, which really refers to our ability to keep track of things when we let go. And the final thing is, is charismatic leadership. So servant leadership hits the love decision. Uh, level five leadership kind of focuses on the learning and succession piece of that. Mm -hmm. uh, the short interval leadership is the let go part. And the reconnect is the charismatic leader that goes out and tells everybody what great things we're doing here. Wouldn't you like to come and work here with us? So it's a so talent detractor. Okay, so how can people find you, David? Website, leadersites.com. I've got a free download. Your listeners can go to that website, 
click on the free downloads button, put in their email address, and I'll give them a free copy of the C4 process. And the, the site again is? It's uh, www.leadersites.com. Leadersites. Okay. That's L-E-A-D-E-R-S-I-G-H-T-S.com. So it's Leader Site, mm-hmm. like Insight. Okay, great. And, and do you want to give them your email address if they want to contact you? Absolutely. Uh, uh, hopefully you'll have it in the notes as well. It's david.veach, V as in Victor, double E-C-H, at leadersites.com. And I Perfect. welcome your comments, welcome your input. Perfect. David, I can't thank you enough. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, I'm, and I'm really looking forward to the next. And um, be safe, my friend, be healthy, and uh, I look forward to our paths crossing very soon. Thank you, Peter. You too. I want to thank David for his time and his stories about his experience in leadership roles and the discussion around dynamic stability. How do you change your mindset where you can adapt to a changing landscape around dynamic stability and the four pillars, mindset, learning organization, build teams, and trust? This is something to seriously consider and ponder You might want to go back and re-listen to that piece because I I feel that that was probably one of the more powerful pieces that David shared with all of us. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment and leave a review on iTunes or whatever platform you download your podcast from. Also, please subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Make today your best day. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.